All right, we'll start. Is anybody not here? You're all here? Okay, let's do drug toxicities on page 26. Bad news, you got to know your drug toxicities. Good news, you don't have to know them all. You just need to know what everybody else knows. And if anybody knows drug toxicities, they know these five. Anything beyond these five is really nuts to know. It's not really need-to-know territory. You do need to know these five, though. I would, I would really suggest that this is a little bit of memory work, but it, it's, good to, it, it's a good payoff for it. Because you understand this is a test for nurse safety. And one of the biggest ways you can be unsafe is to not know drug toxic effects. Do you see how that could, that could result in real patient harm? So there, that's an area that they like to test is toxic reactions to drugs, drug toxicities. So let's talk about these five. Lithium. Lithium, of course, is the famous anti-mania drug. It's used for bipolar, but it's not used for the depression. It's used for the mania. Its therapeutic level in the middle column there, you should write 0.6 to 1.2. Now, the toxic level is greater than or equal to 2. Now, immediately, you should see that there is a gray area there where you're higher than 1.2 but under 2.0. You see that gray area? That is a gray area where no books agree on exactly what's going on with lithium at those levels. From 0.6 to 1.2, everyone agrees that it is therapeutic. Everyone agrees that two and over is toxic. But in between, you just pick your book and they're going to say different things. One of the things that you guys don't know about me, well, maybe you do know about me, that probably is good for you to know about me and to help you understand why I say what I do and, and how I say what I do, is that for years I was a... NCLEX RN item test writer. I wrote questions on the NCLEX. So the questions that were on there, I've written some of those questions. So I've been through the whole training protocol on how they want you to write questions for them. So when I tell you that questions are written this way, that's because I've been through the in-service education on it, and I, I've been trained as their item writer. In 2003, I think it was, maybe it was 2002, somewhere right around in there, the NCSBN made a rule that you cannot be an item writer and be a NCLEX reviewer at the same time, which makes sense. You can't write the questions and then go 
teach people how to pass the test. It's not ethically correct. So at that time, I had to pick between writing questions and reviewing, and I picked reviewing, and so I stopped writing questions. And so I haven't written a question since 2003, roughly. Uh, but if they only change 5% every year, there's still loads of questions on there that I've written. Now, I say that to tell you that when I give you ranges, the ranges I give you may not be the ones you learned, but they are the ones that you use when you write questions. Do you see what I'm saying? And most of the time, my ranges are wider than what you're, most of the times than what you learned. Because the instructions are to every item writer on the boards is when you write a test question that where you use a, a lab value or a, a range, a value in a range, a number, go to at least five different books published by five different publishers and see what they say the range is. Then make your range wide enough to fit all of those. Do you see what I'm saying? So the book one says one to two, book two says one to 2.3, book three says 0.8 to 1.9, well, you've got to go from 0.8 to 2.3 as your range. That way, it's a fair question no matter what book the students used. So you're going to see my ranges are different, but my ranges are, are made to fit the NCLEX. Do you, do you understand that? And not necessarily a particular book. So you may use my ranges and my numbers, and you may go take the... Uh, like the Saunders review book with questions or the exam cram with questions or the NCLEX gold with questions and using my ranges you may miss the question. Why? Because they went by their ranges. What ranges? The ranges in the MedSurge book that that company publishes. Only one book. Not five. Now Kaplan does what I do. Anybody that's a national reviewer does what I do which is a wider range than normal. Okay, so here's the deal: boards would never give you a lithium of 1 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, 1.9. Why? It's in that gray area where books don't agree, and item writers have to get it to where all the books agree. So I teach you two and greater because every book agrees that that is toxic. All righty. So don't, don't, don't worry about that when you see these ranges. Okay, Len Oxen. Len Oxen, what's the other name for it? I told you yesterday you have to know this. Dig. This is used to treat basically two things. Dig is used to treat AFib and congestive heart failure. Atrial fib and congestive heart failure. How, did you, how should you have already known that it treats atrial fib? Dig. In what context did we talk about dig yesterday? Adena, beta, calcium, dig. Oh, that's so dig is the D of the ABCDs of atrial treatment. So atrial fib, yes. And then congestive heart failure is the other big one that it, that it treats. Well, what is the therapeutic level of DIG? One to two. And you notice I'm not giving you units, correct? Because what did I tell you about units? Don't worry about it. 
They're not going to ask you. They're going to say, how many milligrams per deciliter of? And you just say the number. Its toxic level is greater than or equal to two. So what do you notice about two? It could be therapeutic and it could be toxic. So what do you call it when they give you a value of two? Toxic, why? It's safer to call something toxic when it may not be than to say it's therapeutic when it might not be. So always err on that safe side. <clears throat> what do you notice about lithium and lenoxin's toxicities? They're the same at two and greater. Aminophilin. Aminophilin is a airway antispasmodic. It relieves spasms in your airway. It is technically not a bronchodilator. What do I mean by that? It is technically not a bronchodilator. What does it not do? It doesn't stimulate your beta 2 agonists, agonist cell to bronchodilate. It just relaxes a spasm. Now, when you're in a spasm, your airway is what? Narrow or wide? And when I relax a spasm, what happens to the airway? It gets what? Wider. So it actually looks like it's a bronchodilator, but it's not really a bronchodilator. Epinephrine is a bronchodilator. You know, ipatropium is a bronchodilator. Alupen, albuterol is are bronchodilators. Terbutaline is a bronchodilator. This is a muscle spasm relaxer. Has anybody ever, and this, I'm sort of just going off the side here on these things just to see if you can apply some stuff. Have you ever seen anybody come in and, or heard of anyone coming in in an acute asthmatic attack and the bronchodilators aren't working? That happens on occasion. Probably what's happening. Why aren't the bronchodilators working? What's that? I really can't hear you, Mr. Chuck. Okay, this, the, the inflammation, but there's a bigger reason. They're in a spasm. They're in an acute lockdown spasm. And the bronchodilator isn't going to work because the spasm's in the way. So what do you have to give them first? Some aminophilin to do what to the spasm? Relieve the spasm. Then you can come in with a bronchodilator and it will work. So just remember, when a bronchodilator doesn't work in an acute airway problem, Give them a theophylline, give them an aminophilin, and that'll melt the spasm, and then the bronchodilator will work. Yes? Do they have protocols then where they give the antispasmodic first? Yeah, a lot of times when little kids come in with uh, acute reactive airway disease, they'll slap them on an aminophilin drip and then start giving them breathing treatments with betas. And they may have 20 of them, and the first 19 may not work until that aminophilin kicks in, then the 19th one works. You see, so I've seen little kids. What's the most breathing treatments you've seen a uh, airway? Anybody ever in work ER in children's stuff ever? Or what's the most? Nobody's okay. Well, then it's a dumb question. But I have seen up to twenty breathing treatments being given in a row to these little kids. It's really just phenomenal. Okay, um, no, that's not typical. That's the extreme. All right, what's the therapeutic level? Ten to twenty. There again, don't worry about units. 10 to 20. Any aminophilin under 10 is what? If you get an aminophilin level of 8, what's that mean? So they need to take 
more? Or are they taking it? Okay. If it's 21, what's it mean? It's toxic. But anything in between 10 and 20 is therapeutic. What if it's 20? Because 20, toxicity is greater than or equal to 20 on this one. So 20 could be either way, so you call it toxic. If you have to. So aminophilin toxic is greater than or equal to 20. Dilantin, what is this used for? Does anybody know what dilantin or phenytoin? Seizure. Seizure, yeah. Its therapeutic level is 10 to 20. And its toxicity is greater than or equal to 20. So what do you call 20? Although it may be therapeutic. Bilirubin. Bilirubin is not a drug. It's a waste product from the breakdown of red blood cells. When boards test bilirubin, they will only test it in newborns. They will never test it in adults. Does anybody know what the normal adult bilirubin is? It's like 1 to 2, you know, 1.4 to 2.3, something like that. It's really low. But in newborns, newborns have high bilirubins all the time. Why? What are they doing? Breaking down which red blood cells? The moms. So they, babies will run bilirubins of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and that's fine. Now, if I had an 8 bilirubin right now, they'd have my rear end in a bed over there finding out what's wrong with me. But a newborn with an 8 is no big deal. So what I want you to do with this bilirubin is do you see where it says therapeutic level, the middle column? In the box for bilirubin, I want you to write the word elevated level. Elevated level. So what is the elevated range for bilirubin in a newborn? 10 to 20. So what does it mean when a bilirubin in a newborn is 9.9 and less? It's normal, but it's, it's high for an adult, but it's normal. So we don't even get concerned about newborn bilirubins until it hits what number? 10. Which is 10 times, 5 to 10 times more than what an adult should have. So what is the bilirubin toxicity? Greater than or equal to 20. So when do you suppose a child, a child with what bilirubin and above do you think needs to come into the hospital? Certainly before, what about before 10? No. No. And even at 10, 11, and 12, what are they? Is is it elevated? But you can manage it at home with sunlight, drinking a lot, flushing that bilirubin out. It's usually right about 14 to 15 that docs start thinking about hospitalizing these kids. About 14 or 15. Because once you hit 15, where are you in the scheme of things overall? You're halfway to what? You're halfway to toxic. And once you hit toxic, they can die. So you don't want it to be 18 or 17 or 19. That's way too close. You just don't like that. So, But most docs will not bring in a 12 or a 13. They'll usually wait till 14. Some docs wait till 15. I don't see any docs that wait till 16. I just typically not. Okay, so halfway through the elevated range, they start to hospitalize. Now, what do you notice about those toxic levels? 
What, what pattern do you see? Twos and twenties. Twos and twenties. Which ones are the twos? Lithium and Lenox, and we start with what letter? So you pick the lower number with the ones with L. So lithium, lenoxin, go low. Two. Bilirubin, aminophilin, dilantin, go high, go 20. So you're usually picking between 2 and 20. And those are the major ones that they talk about. All right, what about kernicterus and epistatonus? Do you see those words right there? You need to know these words, these vocabulary words. What does kernicterus mean? Does anyone know what kernicterus means? Bilirubin in the brain. When your bilirubin crosses your blood-brain barrier and it's in your cerebral spinal fluid, it's in your brain, it's in your meninges, you have kernicterus. So kernicterus... Okay, what's jaundice? It's a yellow color due to... Bilirubin in the skin. What's kernicterus? Bilirubin in the brain. Do you see what I'm saying? So... Jaundice is bilirubin in the skin. Kernicterus is bilirubin in the brain. It's, it's, both are due to bilirubin. It's just where is it? Kernicterus usually occurs when you get up around 20. When your bilirubin gets around 20, you start going kernicteric. Do you see why it's so dangerous? Because bilirubin, when it gets into your brain, it causes what we call aseptic. What does that mean? Aseptic. A means what? Without sepsis means infection. So aseptic means no germs. It, it causes aseptic meningitis, aseptic encephalitis, which means a sterile encephalitis due to the irritation of the bilirubin. You don't have to know all that. Just know that when your bilirubin gets to be 20, you go kernicteric and you could die. The baby could. Now, opisthotonos, does anybody know what that is? I told you we learned a lot of vocabulary this week. What's opisthotonos? Okay, it's a position the baby assumes when they have bilirubin on the brain. It's a position. Kernicterus is a condition. Opisthotonos is a position. And what they do is they hyperextend. These babies hyperextend due to the irritation of the meninges with the bilirubin. So these babies hyperextend. Now, what do you know about the flexibility of a newborn? No flexibility or unbelievable flexibility. Unbelievable. So when they extend, literally their heels will come up and touch their ears. They will be like in a back walkover. You know, they'll be completely, and they'll be very rigid in that they'll hyperextend they almost look like they're decerebrating if you've ever heard of decerebration they look they're real hyperextending when you see that when you see a little kid whose bilirubin is 15 okay he came in bilirubin 15 and he starts extending his neck what do you think is that something that needs to follow up right away immediately medical emergency yes because he could be going into a pistotonos because he's kernicteric. And you want to catch it right away. Now, the question that often is asked on boards and other standardized tests is, what, in what position do you place 
an opisthotonic child. Now think about it. If they're hyperextending like this, what's a good position to put them in? On their side. You can't put them on their back. You can't put them on their abdomen. You have to put them on their side. Okay, that's it on drug toxicities. Just remember your remember your twos and your twenties. Yes. Um, well, the only thing boards will do there is they'll talk about pathologic jaundice versus physiologic jaundice. And physiologic jaundice, the bilirubin is high and the kid is yellow at birth. With pathologic jaundice, no, no, no reverse that. Pathologic, it's high at birth and the kid's yellow at birth. Physiologic jaundice, the kid's bilirubin is low at birth, not well, normal at birth, and over the next two to three days goes high on bilirubin. So here's the deal. If they come out yellow, something's wrong. It's pathologic. If they come out yellow. If they turn yellow over the next few days, that's typical, expected. But um, they're, not gonna, they're just going to ask about whether it's present at birth or develops on day two, day three, and which one's pathologic, which one's physiologic. And they won't get any more specific than that. <clears throat> which is in the blue book, you know, so you've got to remember that blue book, too. Okay, dumping syndrome versus hiatal hernia. These are very commonly tested things on boards, particularly dumping syndrome. They really like to talk about dumping syndrome. It shows up a lot. Definitions. What is hiatal hernia? Well, I like to talk about these two together because they're both gastric emptying problems. And they're kind of opposites. And I like to remember opposites together. Why? <coughs> Memorize one and you got the other. That's why diabetes insipidus and SIADH, I'm only going with one, figuring the other one out. Well, let's talk about what hiatal hernia is. Hiatal hernia is regurgitation of acid, meaning acid comes back up into your esophagus, where it's not supposed to be because the upper part of your stomach herniates upward through the diaphragm. You're not supposed to have... Where's all, Your stomach is supposed to be 100% in your abdominal cavity, right? With hiatal hernia, you have a two-chambered stomach. You got two, you're like a cow. You got two stomachs. Typically, this is your thorax here. Okay, and here's your diaphragm separating your uh, abdominal cavity below from your thoracic cavity above. Esophagus comes down like this, and then the stomach is there. It's supposed to be all below this diaphragm. In hiatal hernia, what happens is part of it goes up like this, and you've got a two chambered stomach with a band around the middle. And what happens when you eat, it sort of sits right here and then comes right back up. That's the problem with high and hurt. Now, below the 
line there, it's, do you see where it says gastric contents move? Gastric contents move in the right or wrong direction. Wrong, wrong direction at the correct rate. In other words, does the stomach empty faster or slower or at a normal rate? Well, it empties at a normal rate. The rate's not the problem. With hiatal hernia, the rate is not the problem. It is the direction that is the problem. It's moving in the wrong direction at the correct rate. Now, let's compare that with something called dumping syndrome. Dumping syndrome, again, is a gastric problem. It usually follows gastric surgery in which the gastric contents dump too quickly into the duodenum. Now, are your gastric contents supposed to go into your duodenum? Yes. So what's the problem? It's too fast. So in this case, the gastric contents move in the right direction at the wrong rate. So you see where, there's, where they're opposites? One is correct rate, wrong direction. The other is wrong rate, correct direction. You know, they flip-flop. So if, you, if these were speeding tickets that you... If, not speeding. If these were traffic violations you got, if these were traffic violations, what would you be cited for in hiatal hernia? Going the wrong way on a one-way street. Correct? What would you be cited for with, high, with dumping syndrome? Speeding. speeding. So one's a speed issue, one's a direction issue. All right, what are the signs and symptoms? Well, hiatal hernia is real easy. The signs and symptoms of hiatal hernia are just plain GERD. G-E-R-D. Gastroesophageal reflux disease. In other words, heartburn and indigestion, to state it simply. So when you see GERD, don't freak out. It's just heartburn and indigestion. No biggie. But let me tell you something. Hiatal hernia is a specific case here. You can have GERD for a hundred different reasons, one of which is hiatal hernia. What makes GERD hiatal hernia is this. Hiatal hernia is GERD if you lie down after you eat. If you have indigestion and heartburn, it doesn't mean you have hiatal hernia. You could have it, but it doesn't mean you do have it. I'm going to give you two examples, and you tell me which one has GERD and which one has hiatal hernia. All right? A nurse gets up in the morning skips breakfast, goes to work, passes a whole floor of meds, does a bunch of treatments, and at 11 o'clock gets epigastric burning pain, burping, indigestion, and it really, really hurts, and they got to drink some milk or something. It's, oh, it hurts. Do they have GERD? Yes. Do they have hiatal hernia? Why not? You aren't lying down, and you didn't eat. Okay, but what about this patient? Nurse gets off at 7 p.m., goes home, eats dinner at 8 o'clock. Sits down, watches TV. Half hour later, eats a bowl of cereal. 20 minutes later, eats a bag of chips. 20 minutes later, eats you know, uh, ice cream and chocolate syrup. Then they get tired, and 10 minutes later, they go to bed. Half hour later, they wake up with burning, epigastric pain, 
indigestion. They go, oh, it hurts. Same set of symptoms that the other nurse had. Could this person have hiatal hernia? Why? They lay down right after they ate. You cannot have hiatal hernia unless your symptoms occur when you're lying down after you eat. If you have GERD at a random time, you don't have hiatal hernia. Hiatal hernia is dependent upon position and meal time. That's hiatal hernia. It's just indigestion and heartburn when you lie down after you eat. Okay, dumping syndrome. And they like to test dumping syndrome, and it's a huge list of signs. The easiest way I know to remember all the things that happen in dumping syndrome is to take what I already know and combine it to equal dumping syndrome. So what do I want you to take? Well, first off, if you want to know what a person looks like with dumping syndrome, the first thing is talk about drunk. Okay, what's a drunk person look like? Staggering gait, slurred speech, impaired Judgment delayed, reaction time, emotional, what's the fancy word? Labile emotions. Well, all that can be dumping syndrome. Because with dumping syndrome, you do have cerebral impairment. Because of decreased blood flow to the brain, because all the blood's going to the gut, because it dumped into the duod. Then you also get shock. Signs of shock, which are what? Hypotension, tachycardia, tachypnea, what's the skin? Pale, cold, clammy, cold because you don't have any blood there. It's vasoconstricting. So pale, cold, clammy. All right, so drunk plus shock. What does that equal? What did I teach you that drunk plus shock equals? Hypoglycemia. Well, to get dumping syndrome, you add to that acute abdominal distress. And what belongs on the list of acute abdominal distress signs and symptoms. When someone has acute abdominal distress, describe them for me. Cramping, pain, doubling over, guarding, protecting, what else? What would you hear with a stethoscope? Borborygmy, thank you. Yes, hyperactive bowel sounds, but they won't say that. They'll say borborygmy. What kind of bowel elimination pattern would you have? Diarrhea. So you get cramping, abdominal pain with diarrhea, borborygmy, guarding, bloating, distension, tenderness. That all goes with dumping syndrome. So if you get a dumping syndrome question and they ask you for signs and symptoms, how do you learn them? Drunk, shock, Acute abdominal distress. So here's what I, hopefully you're, see, I want you guys to start filing things better, more efficiently. They do test alcohol intoxication, which is drunk, right? So drunk is drunk, right? You know that. Okay, shock, they'll test that too. Shock looks like shock. Do you understand this? Now, if you take drunk and shock, and you put them together, what do you have the signs and symptoms of? Hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. 
If you throw in some acute abdominal distress with that, what do you get? <coughs> Dumping syndrome. So I'm trying to link four of the major things they test. Shock, low blood sugar, dumping syndrome, alcohol intoxication. They all can be learned together. So what's the protocol? Drunk is drunk. Shock is shock. Drunk plus shock is hypoglycemia. That plus acute abdominal distress is dumping syndrome. And you just see what I'm trying to do is get you keeping adding rather than memorizing four separately. Okay, drunk is drunk, shock is shock, drunk plus shock is hypoglycemia, drunk plus shock plus acute abdominal distress is dumping syndrome. Okay, number three, what's the treatment for hiatal hernia and dumping syndrome? They're going to be opposites. Because think about this, with hiatal hernia, you want the stomach to empty faster. Why do you want the stomach to empty faster with hiatal hernia? Because if it's empty, it won't what? Reflux. However, with dumping syndrome, we want the stomach to empty slower. Do you see it's the opposite? So if you just remember one, remember the, uh, the other's the opposite. So what are you going to do to affect stomach emptying time? Well, there are three things you can do. To change the way the stomach empties, you can play around with the head of the bed. You can play around with the water content of the meal. And you can play around with the carbohydrate content of the meal. Alright, so let's go through this. In hiatal hernia, what do we want to do with the head of the bed during and after meals? We want it in high position. Why high? That makes gravity empty it faster. Okay, go down the column. What do we want to do with the amount of fluids we give with the meal? Would a liquidy meal or a solid meal, which one will go through the stomach faster? Liquids. So we want the stomach to go through faster with this. So we want the amount of fluids to be high or low. So high fluid. And carbs go through you really fast. Carbs go through your stomach fast. So if you have a high carb, will it empty faster or slower? Fast. So here again, you want the carbohydrate content to be high or low. High. Now, the dumping syndrome is opposite of that. So how should a dumping syndrome eat their meals? In low position, head flat. In other words, how would they eat? How should they eat? Yes. Head of the bed is what? Flat. They're turning to their side and they're eating on the side with the head down. They don't eat on the back with the head down. That would be stupid. Right? But on the side with the head down. So low head of bed. What about the fluids with the meals? High or low? Low. low. So when would they get their fluids? Not with the meals. They'd get it, what, an hour or two before meals or an hour or two after meals, but they would never get it with the meals. And what about carbohydrate content? Low, because we want the stomach to empty slow. When everything is low, the stomach goes slow. slow. Do you hear that? When everything is low, the stomach empties slow. 
In hiatal hernia, you want everything to be what? High. In hiatal hernia, everything needs to be high. So when you see hiatal hernia, you should say everything needs to be high. What needs to be high? Head, fluids, carbs. And if you want the stomach to go slow, pick everything low. Head low, fluids low, carbs low. Now, be careful. What if they throw you a curve and they talk about protein in the diet? For these two. What do you think? Yeah, low protein in hiatal hernia, high protein in dumping service. Because if you're low carb, you're going to be high protein. You understand that? So whatever they, whatever carbs is, protein's the opposite. Any questions about dumping syndrome and hiatal hernia? They're pretty clear. If you, this is a review. So, some sometimes people say, "Mark, I'm I, I know most of what you're teaching me," and I say, "Good. This is called a review." You know, so don't don't get upset when there's a lot of stuff you know. Get upset when it's all a newsflash. You know, <laughs> electrolytes. How many of you in here can give me 15 signs and symptoms of hyperkalemia, hypokalemia, hypercalcemia, hypocalcemia, hypermagnesemia, hypomagnesemia, hypernatremia, and hyponatremia with 80% accuracy? How many can do that? <laughs> when you raise your hand, everybody in class went, oh, I'm not there. No. Anyhow, um, how many could do it with 50% accuracy? No. You probably wouldn't even be able to get 50 with your book. No, okay, uh, what about 5% accuracy? Yeah, somebody's, I got takers on that. Okay, I'm going to ask you that same question in 15 minutes, and I'm going to see what you say in 15 minutes, all right? So let's talk about electrolytes. To know your signs and symptoms of electrolyte disorders, you need to memorize three sentences. The first sentence you memorize is, cholemias, do you see where we're at, number one here? Cholemias. What's it, what are we talking about? Cholemia. Potassium. Yeah. Cholemias do the same as. Same as goes in the blank. Same as. Same as. The prefix except for heart rate and urine output. Potassium imbalances do the same as the prefix except for heart rate and urine output. You memorize that. Cholemias do the same as the prefix. So what I'm telling you is, is when you get a cholemia, just look at the prefix. There are only two options, hyper and hypo. Hyper means everything is what? High. And hypo means it's low. And your symptoms will go high with hyper and low with hypo. They'll go high with hyper and low with hypo. Because it's doing the what? Same as the prefix. Except for the heart rate and the urine output, which will go what? Opposite of the prefix. So with hyper, urine output and heart rate go down. And with hypo, urine urine output and heart rate go yes. So, in your box there, give me some signs and symptoms of hyperkalemia. Hyper. 
Okay, start with the brain. Give me some hyper signs in the brain. Surely you can you, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> You're not that. I know it's the post lunch lull, but cerebrally, if it's hyperkalemia, kalemias do the what? Same. Same as the prefix. The prefix is hyper, so everything in the brain is going to go up because it does the same in hyper. So if you talk about the brain, what symptoms are hyper signs in the brain? Give me some hyper signs in the brain. Agitation, restlessness, irritability, aggression, obnoxiousness, decreased inhibitions, loud, boisterous, right? Those all go with hyperkalemia. All right, well, let's talk about the lungs. What are you going to see there? Tachypnea. What are you going to see in the heart? Low heart rate, because there's the exception. But the T waves will be peak, tall. The STs will be elevated. See, the only thing that goes up is, is the heart rate. Everything else about the heart goes with the prefix. Okay, what will you see in the bowel? Diarrhea, borborygmi. What will you see in the muscle? Spasticity, increased tone. What will you see in the reflexes? Plus three, plus four. And all those signs, what do they have in common? They're all up. Why are they all up? Because you have hyperkalemia. And in kalemias, they do the same as whatever the prefix says they are, except for the heart rate and the urine output, which goes opposite. So what would you list for hypokalemia? Lethargy. Lethargy. Tachycardia, because it can go opposite there. Tachycardia and polyuria. What? Bradypnea. Bowels are going to be what? Slow down. So what might you have? Ileus, constipation, all of that. What are you going to see in your muscles? Flaccidity. What are you going to see in reflexes? Do I want you to memorize these lists that we're generating? No. Because you can get those lists from the saying that says what? Kalemias do the same as the prefix except for heart rate and urine output. Are you seeing what, why, where I'm going with this? Okay. <clears throat> Your patient has hyperkalemia. Select all that applaud. A dynamic ileus. Obtunded. Plus one reflex. Clonus, which is. Okay. U wave. Depressed 
st Polyuria bradycardia. Okay, I want you to look at it and then talk to your buddy, partner. See if you can select. But use the sentence. Polemias do the same as the prefix, except for heart rate and your now. And draw your arrow. So you're going to have to draw an arrow. And you're also going to have to draw the exceptions, which is the heart rate and the urine output. Oh, that should say hyper. It says hype. H-Y-P-E-R. There's an R there. Sorry, guys. It's hyper. What about the U-wave? It says just U-wave. A U-wave. A U-wave is a wave that goes like this. Up and down. It goes what? Down. What is that? Uh, okay, hi, so everything's going Make sure you get all your arrows right. You need to draw a general arrow. An arrow for the heart rate and an arrow for the urine output. Make sure you get them right. It wouldn't be that. I don't want to. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Okay, how many did you select? Okay, I selected two. Let me see if I'm wrong. Okay? Because I'm going to write my arrows out first. I see hyper, and I know Kalimis do the what? Same. So it's going to make everything go up, but heart rate's going to go down, and urine output's going to go down. Okay. A, dynamic, without movement. Iliots, that's down. That does not fit. Obtunded, that is down. That does not fit. Plus one reflex, that is down. That does not fit. Clonus, that is irritability. There we go. That fits. U-wave, it goes down. That doesn't fit. Depressed ST, it's going down. That doesn't fit. Polyuria, oh no, it should be oliguria. That doesn't fit. Heart rate down. Bradycardia, yeah, that fits. Now, those of you that did three, which one did you add that you shouldn't have added? You forgot to write the... See, if you forget to write your arrows, you're dead in the water. You've got to write your arrows. Then go looking. Don't look first and then go back and write arrows. You know what I'm saying? Know what you're looking for first. Know the meaning of the words. Yeah, meaning of the words is helpful. Yes. The U wave, a U wave is something that goes, starts on the baseline and goes down from the baseline. So it's a, it's a sign of cardiac depression. 
And the idea, though, Leonid, is if you don't know what something is on a select all that apply, don't fix it. Because everybody tends to what? Over-select by one. And isn't that what you guys did? You over-selected by one. I mean, it's like predictable. Yes? Obtundent is just a little more comatose than lethargy. So you got lethargic, and then as you go even more deep into a coma, you get obtundent. A lethargic person, ask me a question, and I'll be lethargic. Just ask me a question. Uh, where do you live? No, say that. Uh, what's your name? Uh, Mark. Where do you live? Okay. See, I was saying, or she'd say, Mark what? Just have uh, Okay. Now that's lethargic. Okay. This is a pun. Okay. What's your name? Yeah. What would you do? What would you do? You're a litter. Do what you would do. What's your name? <laughs> what's your name? <laughs> you just have to say, now what's comatose? <laughs> <laughs> so obtunded, they they pretty much you they're go they're you can rouse them and then and then they go off to la la land and then you rouse them and they go lethargics will respond but they just. It's going to take a while to get it out. Obtundids will never respond, but they're rousable. Yes? Stupor and obtundid are often considered to be the same idea. Stupor is more a generic word. Obtundid is more the medical term. Usually, you know, I won't go there. It doesn't need to happen. Okay, calciums. Calcemias do the opposite. Calcemias do the opposite of the prefix. Which means if your calcium goes high, everything goes low. low. And if your calcium goes low, everything goes high. So hypercalcemia, what would you have? Bradycardia, uh, bradypnea, flaccid muscles, hypoactive reflexes, lethargy, constipation, right? Everything goes down when calcium goes up. However, when calcium goes down, hypocalcemia, everything goes up. So what do you get with hypocalcemia? Agitation, irritability, clonus, plus four reflexes, spasm, irritability, seizure, tachycardia, all that kind of stuff. And you get two other things, Chavas text sign and Trousseau's sign, which Hesse loves. Trousseau's and Chavas text. Chavas text starts with what two letters? CH. And what do you do to elicit it? You tap the cheek. So just think, Chavastek's cheek. Chavastek cheek. So when you rub their, when you touch their cheek with Chavastek's, they go into a spasm of the face. Their face spasms. 
Which shouldn't happen. You know, if I touch you on the cheek, you should go. You know, and you shouldn't go. That would be chivastics. What is it a sign of? It's a sign of neuromuscular irritability associated with a low calcium. It is a sign of neuromuscular irritability associated with a low calcium. Why does that sentence make sense? Irritability, low calcium. Why does that make sense? Because calciums do the opposite, so irritability would have to be low calcium. The other sign is trousseau's. Trousseau's is when you put a blood pressure cuff on their arm, you pump it up and they go into a spasm of the hand. So it's a hand spasm when you put a blood pressure cuff on. So Chivastex, you do what? Cheek. Trousseau's, you do blood pressure cuff and look for that. Stupid way I remember this. Really dumb, but it works for me. Um, Trousseau sounds like a French name. So I, when I see Trousseau on a test, I think of an effeminate Frenchman. And he says, I'm Trousseau. So, you know, I saw that that Trousseau. So I know it's weird, but, you know, it may stick. I was thinking Trousseau. Trousseau. Okay. Um, boards live. Hesse tests. Those of you who are going to take Hesse. They will test Chivastex and Trousseau's till the cows come home on that. They love it. All right. Hey, by the way, what if I change this to hypercalcemia? Would it change the answer? Yeah. Because now you're looking for what? Calciums do the opposite. This says hyper, so it's going to make everything go down so you're going to see this and this and this and not that and that and that and that and not this oh you will see that yeah you will see you will see that yes I'm sorry I got a little pen heavy there. you see so it's it's really yeah you won't see polyuria it's really good when you guys are better than me at this that's what we need to be because I'm not taking the test you are okay but do you see what I'm saying? It, it really is more manageable. Now, if they ask you which sets of these, like for the hyperkalemia, if they ask you which one of those was most likely, you'd have narrowed it down to two. Which two? Clonus and bradycardia. But because it was potassium, you'd give the edge to the heart. If they're talking calcium, you'd have all these things but you'd give the edge to the muscles and the muscles and the nerves. Do you see what I'm saying? So there is that little... But make sure it's the right thing first before you do it. You know what I mean? But if you're, if you're between a couple of signs for potassium that are correct, and they're asking you to pick between them, for potassium, pick the heart sign. But make sure it's going the right way for the uh, prefix, correct? And when you're, when you're talking about the calcium make pick the skeletal muscle and nerve but make sure it's gone the correct way alright let's talk about magnesium number three magnesemias do the opposite of the prefix now some review books out there say that hypomagnesemia is not associated with hypertension 
Because it's does the, it does the what? Magnesiums do the so a hypomag would result in high blood pressure. As some books say, no, that's not true. Check it out. Go investigate, and you'll find that low magnesium is associated with hypertension. Okay, so some of these books get a little sloppy in their their answers. Who had that exam cram book yesterday? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times they'll say they'll say that when you retain sodium, magnesium sometimes gets retained. So they say that high magnesium is associated with hypertension, but no, it's really a function of the high sodium, not the magnesium. Yeah. If you just talk about magnesium itself, the low magnesium has the high pressure. But it is kind of related, but it is not is not a symptom of or a sign of. So no, board, what will boards do as far as blood pressure and magnesium go? They won't even go there. Because that doesn't tell them anything significant about you. It just tells you on what side of the debate are you on. <laughs> that kind of thing. <coughs> um, we, uh, just a little thing about... People have asked me about using multiple choice books to, to study for boards. You know those multiple choice books. What have I told you about them already? One out of five answers is bogus in those books. 20% of the questions in those books are wrong. They are wrong. And when you do them, you think they are all, what, 100% right? right. And when and, and you start to doubt yourself when you're the one that knows what's right and the book is wrong. So you have to be real careful. When you do those books, do I want you to do them? Yeah. But how do I want you to do them? If you answer an answer and you know it's right, you go to the rationale, they say you're wrong, what should you say? What do I want you to say? It's bogus. I'm not having my confidence destroyed. I do know what I'm talking about. The book is wrong. I mean, there was a classic one on the exam the other day that you showed me. It's asked, which patient needs a private room? And there was a patient with Cushing's syndrome in there. Well, Cushing's people are immunosuppressed. They should be in a private room. The other patient was hyperthyroid. And they said a hyperthyroid should be in the room because they don't sleep well because they're hyperthyroid. And if they had a roommate, they wouldn't be able to sleep real well. Well, my opinion is between somebody that isn't sleeping and somebody that's immunosuppressed, there's no... Any nurse you ask would say... Do you see what I'm saying? So you've got to watch those books. And then even in that book, which is the book I like the best, I think it has the best questions of any book. I have real problems with it. In one of the chapters it said that... Uh, Hypokalemia is not seen with Cushing's. Absolutely it is. With Cushing's, you've got a lot of what? Aldosterone, which makes you retain sodium and water. Well, to retain sodium in the loop of Henley, what do you have to kick out? Potassium. So you do get hypokalemia. And then in chapter 8 or 9, they ask about it again, and they say that you do see hypokalemia with Cushing. So in chapter 3 they say you don't and in chapter 8 they say you do. That's the state of the art of those books. Do you see what I'm saying? So when you go do these books and you know your stuff and you're ready to go and it's telling you no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong you're probably what? You're right, you're right, you're right. Well, they just, yeah, I mean they're, they're not, they just, they're, they're putting out a product to make money. Right. 
and the faster they can get it done with the fewer people looking at it, the more money they make. Okay? Uh, we took uh, three faculty at Cedarville took the HESI test and we there's 160 questions. We disagreed with 30. And your faculty would too if they took the test. They would disagree. And, and with ATI, they would, they would disagree with even more. But they've never taken the test. So they don't even know what's on it. You see what I'm saying? They don't even know what's on it and they're asking you to take it and they're making decisions based on something they've never seen. And I'm telling you, they will. You just, you tell them. He said, you take that test. You take that test and you see if you disagree with it. And they'll disagree with it. I guarantee they'll disagree with at least 10 to 15%, if not 20 to 30%. They really, really will. But that's no excuse to get a 650 on the HESI. You understand what I'm saying? If you disagreed, if you missed all the questions that were bogus on HESI, you know what you'd end up with? If you missed all the ones that were bogus and you got like 80% to 90% of the ones that really were valid, do you know what score you'd end up with a HESI? An 1,100-something. You see, so that's not going to flunk you on. You know what I'm saying? I'm telling you two things. I'm telling you they have a really a lot of bad questions on there, but those bad questions aren't going to be what... Don't say, oh, they're going to get... No. You have to not know some things, too. All righty. Question. I would, I would just, I would just, you know, when, after you graduate, I would. That's the best time to go back and just ask him and say, you know, have you guys taken the ATI? <laughs> no, have you taken it? No, honestly, have you taken it? Do you know what's on it? Have you seen those questions? Do you know what the question? Do you have you done a quality inspection of the product that you're putting? Do you know the product that you're putting so much weight on? See, I wrote my test. I wrote my final in my course. So I know. So when I say you fail it, I say you fail it because I wrote that test and I know that test. But a test I don't know, how do I know what it's like? These products are not that fantastic. The boards is fantastic. These products are not. You see what I'm saying? No. But then having said that, I'm saying that there's no reason not to get a reasonable score on these even with those horrible questions. All right. But I just want, what I don't want you to do is this. I don't want you to learn a lot, know a lot, go take these questions and take a hundred of them and have your confidence totally destroyed because they don't agree with what you said. Do you see what I'm saying? And you tend to only focus on the ones that you didn't agree with, not the hundred you did get right. You tend to focus on the four or five that you missed. Isn't that the way we are? So, so don't let those destroy. How many find that doing those batteries of questions are the fastest and quickest way to destroy your confidence? Yeah. And that's not what they should, that you shouldn't even be doing them if that's what it's doing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. All right. So magnesiums do the what? Opposite. Now, can you have a tie? Could it be possible that a certain symptom could be caused by a magnesium imbalance or a calcium imbalance or a potassium imbalance? Could that happen? Sure. So how do you break those ties? Well, here's the tiebreaker. In a tie, don't pick magnesium. Why? It's not a major player. So it's probably not the magnesium that's causing the problem. Number two, if it is skeletal muscle or nerve, blame it on 
calcium. For everything else, blame it on potassium. So let me show you how, what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about this kind of question. Your patient has diarrhea. What caused it? <coughs> Hyperkalemia. Hypokalemia. Hypocalcemia. <coughs> hypomagnesemia. All right, now, you know it's an electrolyte question, right? So no, you know you're going to play game, be playing games with arrows. Correct? So, is this symptom up or down? So you got to find something that causes stuff to go up. The bowel to go up, right? Okay. Potassiums do the what? Same. So hyper makes everything go. So could that cause that? So that's a possibility, is it not? Kalemias do the same. Hypo makes everything go down. Could that cause that? No, that's up. Calciums do the opposite. So hypo makes everything go up. So could that cause that? Yes. Remember, they're in the same direction that could cause it. Magnesiums do the opposite. So hypo makes everything go up. So could that cause that? Yes, so we have a what? Tie. So what don't we pick in a tie? So we rule out D. Is this skeletal muscle or nerve? No, so what do we rule out? Calcium. So we blame it on the high potassium. Are you seeing how that works? Let me show you another one. What if it said tetany? Is that up or down? Uh, so let's do the same Kalemias do the same so hyper makes everything go up so could that cause that yes same down no that would be out calciums do the opposite so low calcium makes everything go up so could that cause that yes Magnesium does the opposite, so low makes everything go high. So could that cause that? Yes. yes. So we have the same three-way tie we had with diarrhea, correct? Now, what do we rule out first? The magnesium again. Is this skeletal muscle? Yes. This is skeletal muscle and nerve, so now we blame it on the what? The calcium, and we don't go any further. Now let me show you what mistake people make with electrolytes. Your patient has tetany. What caused it? A, a high potassium. B, a high calcium. C, a low magnesium. Do you know what 90% of students taking this question without understanding what I just taught you would pick for this one? The high calcium. Because they've got burned in their brain calcium muscles, calcium muscles. If it's muscle, it's calcium, right? So they're going to pick high calcium and they're going to be dead wrong. Why? It's 
going the wrong way. You've got to use your sentences first. Potassiums do the same. So this could cause that. Calciums do the opposite. So that's going to make everything go down. That would be ruled out. See how the answer that everybody would pick should be the first one ruled out because they're not using what? Their sentences. And they just think muscle, calcium, potassium, heart. And they don't even look to see if it's going the correct direction. How many think you might have done that? If it's potassium, it's heart. If it's calcium, it's muscle. And then you don't even look at the prefix. Okay, so look at the prefix first. Then use potassium, heart, calcium, muscle for tie-breaking. Yes? This could cause that. This could cause that. And this could cause that. Okay, now, our tiebreaker is in a tie. Don't pick magnesium. If the symptom involves skeletal muscle, which it does, pick the calcium. And you don't have to go any further. But you've got to go through for the first time to make sure that your prefix agrees with the symptom. You have to make sure that that imbalance would actually cause it. Then you go break your tie. Second, what most people do by mistake is they use the tiebreaker first. Do you see what I'm saying? They rule out magnesium for skeletal muscle, they pick calciums, and for everything else, they pick potassium. But, and, and they don't even look to see if, it, if it's even feasible. That's the problem that people have. Question? Okay. All right, let's turn the page and talk about sodiums. Do you see the one with the E? I want you to write dehydration using it like an acrostic, like a crossword puzzle. Put the D over top the E and then write hydration down. The one with the E, hypernatremia, is associated with dehydration. Do you see over in the other column the one with the O? Write the word overload down from that. Overload. Aren't dehydration and overload opposites? So when you get a hypernatremia, what should you see? The letter what? E, which tells you it is the same as dehydration. And when you see hyponatremia, you should see the O and say that's the same as fluid overload. So here's how you would use this. The one with the E is dehydration. The one with the O is overload. And you're using sodium here. So if they said this, a student nurse runs to you, the LPN, and says, oh my goodness, I just ran an IV, a whole liter of IV fluid into the patient in 10 minutes. I forgot to close the clamp. Okay? Ran a whole liter in in 10 minutes. I forgot to close the clamp. What electrolyte imbalance would you expect to see? Why did you say hyponatremia? Because they would have had fluid overload and you'd have been absolutely 100% correct. Which patient is put on a fluid restriction and Lasix? Hyponatremic. Which one is given lots of fluids? 
hypernatremia because that's dehydration. Who has hot, flushed, dry skin? That describes what? Hypernatremia, so that's the one with the E, so that's dehydration. So here's my point. If you had a 20-question test over dehydration and fluid overload versus a 20-question test on hypernatremia and hyponatremia, which one would you rather take? The dehydration overload. But what's the reality? It's the exact same test. Because anytime you see dehydration, you say what? Hypernatremia. Whenever you see overload, you say hyponatremia. And vice versa. So, in addition to a high potassium, what other electrolyte imbalance is possible in D? K-A. In DKA, what other electrolyte imbalance is possible? Hypernatremia. Why? Because wherever you see the word dehydration, you can throw in the word hypernatremia. Anywhere you see hypernatremia, you throw in the word dehydration. So what nursing diagnosis would be major for hyponatremia? Hyponatremia, what major nursing diagnosis? Fluid volume excess. Exactly. Or SIADH would have hyponatremia. DI would have hypernatremia. And HHNK would have hyper, because HHNK is the same as dehydration, which is the same as hypernatremia. Is that sort of easier for you? Okay. So what do you have to know to know your electrolytes? Here's what you have to know. Kalemias do the same as the prefix except for heart rate and urine output. Calciums and magnesiums do the opposite. The one with the E is dehydration. The one with the O is overload. That's it. Now if you use those... Kalimis do the same as the prefix, except for heart rate, neuron output, calcium, magnesium do opposite. The one with the E is dehydration, one with the other is O. Could you give me 15 signs and symptoms of hyperkalemia, hypokalemia, hypercalcemia, hypoglycemia, hypermagnesemia, hypomagnesemia, hypernatremia, and hyponatremia with 80% accuracy? Who could do it? And are you memorizing stuff? No. Because those lists won't stay. Okay? So, but you need to memorize what? Kalimis do the same. same as the except for calcium and magnesium do the the one with the E is the one with the O is okay. so learn that otherwise learn your lists have at it <laughs> be my guest okay the earliest sign of any electrolyte disorder is numbness and tingling the earliest sign so if they said to you what would be the first thing you would see what would you say? Numbness and tingling. Now, vocabulary, this word means numbness and tingling. Paresthesia. So boards will say paresthesia instead of numbness and tingling. One thing they love to say is circumoral. Circumoral paresthesia. What's that mean? 
numb and tingling lips. So that's a very, very early sign of these electrolyte disorders. The universal sign of electrolyte imbalance is muscle weakness. All electrolyte imbalances cause muscle weakness. They all do. <clears throat> Does anybody know the fancy word for muscle weakness? Paresis. You need to know those two words. Paresthesia and paresis. Paresthesia is numbness and tingling. Paresis is muscle weakness. <clears throat> All right, that's it on signs and symptoms. Let's talk about treatment. And the only treatment they're really going to test is potassium. Alrighty? First rule never push potassium IV. Everybody knows that? Good. Never push potassium IV. Number two, not more than 40 of K per liter of IV fluid. Now, LPNs, you probably don't have to worry about this, but RNs on your test, if you have, if the doctor writes an order for 60 of K in the liter, you're supposed to call and clarify. 40 of K, you don't call, you don't clarify, you just follow the order. But if it's over 40, you question and clarify. That's pretty standard. Okay, three and four. Numbers three and four. These are ways to lower a potassium. Why is a high potassium such a bad thing? It stops your heart. Cardiac arrest. So, what is the most dangerous electrolyte imbalance of them all? High potassium. Of all the electrolyte disorders, the worst one is a high potassium. It beats all of them because it can stop a heart. So, we need to know how to lower that potassium. So, number three is the fastest way to lower the potassium, and that is give D5W with regular insulin. Give D5W with regular insulin. What's that going to do? It's going to drive the potassium into the cell, out of the blood. And it's the potassium in the blood that will kill you, not the potassium in the cells. So does D5W and regular insulin get rid of the excess potassium? Yes or no? No. What does it do with it? It hides it. Hides it where? In the cell. Does it really solve the problem? No. Then why do we do it? To save their life. Sometimes it's so high and that heart is being so negatively affected that we got to get that potassium down fast. We don't have time to solve the underlying problem. We don't have time to get the kidney get kicking it out. We just have to get it out of the blood as fast as we can do it. It's sort of like your floor is dirty as all get out. Company's coming in the driveway. So what do, you do the, what do you do to the dirt? Sweep it under the rug and throw the rug back down because you don't have time to what? Really clean the floor. That's the way this is. With this, we're just sort of sweeping the potassium under the rug. Now, what's going to happen over the next few hours? 
after this works. It lowers the K. Fantastic. Now what's going to happen over the next eight hours? The potassium is going to leak right back into where? The blood where it could kill you again. So this is, what's the upside of this one? Fast and quick. What's the downside? Temporary. <coughs> Which is why we use the other one, k Now, k goes into your gut. It either is put through your mouth or through your rectum, an enema or a ingestion. And it's, it's full of sodium. It's chalk full of sodium. Now, as it sits in your gut, what do you think it liberates into the blood? Sodium. But to maintain electronegative equilibrium, what has to be kicked out of the blood into the gut? Potassium. Potassium. And where does it get picked up by the k So the k goes in full of sodium, but it trades sodiums for potassium. So when you defecate the k out, what's it full of? Potassium. Now, how did your blood start out? High in what? Potassium. It ends up high in sodium. So you have what imbalance? Hypernatremia. That's the one with the E. So that is just simply dehydration. So we give them fluids and we correct that problem. So what we're doing is we're training a non-life-threatening electrolyte imbalance for a life-threatening one. You know, we're switching. We're getting rid of a life-threatening imbalance and giving them a non-life-threatening imbalance. But they still have an imbalance when we're done. Now, what's the good side about k What's the good side? What's that? Um, it lasts longer, yes, but there's even, and there's a reason why it lasts longer. Why? It gets rid of the excess potassium out of your body, never to reoccur. Okay, well, what's the downside of KXLA? Well, yeah, you get, you get hypernatremic, but that's not the worst downside. It takes a long time. It takes hours, and you may not live that long. So what's the advantage of D5W regular insulin? What's the downside? Temporary. Temporary. What's the upside for KXLA? Permanent. What's the downside? Takes a while. So what do you think we do simultaneously? We give them both. What lowers the potassium right away? D5 regular insulin. As it starts to come back out of the cell, who picks it up? KXLA. And out it goes. So, let me ask you this. What electrolyte does KXLate work with? For calcium, magnesium, or potassium? Potassium. What's the symbol for potassium? Now, does KXLate make potassium enter the cell or exit the body? Does it do it fast or slow? Early or late? Say that real fast. Okay, so the minute you see K exhalate, what should you think? K exits late. 
Potassium leaves the body, but it's going to take a while. Well then, so if K exits late in K exhalate, then what happens with D5W and regular insulin? K what? Enters early. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you know that K exits late in K exhalate, then you know what D5W and regular insulin does, which is the opposite of that. It doesn't exit, it enters, and it doesn't do it late, it does it early or fast. Okay? Do the practice question at the bottom of the page using the rules that I taught you. Do not use your normal thinking. Use the rules that I taught you. I want you to think through it. Remember, if a answer is part wrong, it's all wrong. And when you get an electrolyte question, what, it's all, what is it all about? Drawing what? Arrows. treatment that you're going to do on a unit in a non-code, non-emergency, non yeah. Okay, what, do you, what answer did you guys come up with? C. How many said A? B, C, D. Okay, how hard was this question? Scale of 0 to 10. 0 being easy, 10 being unbelievably difficult. What would you give it? 1, 2, 3. An hour ago, what would you have given it? <laughs> so what did you see? What did you notice? What word did you notice? Hypercalcemia. Calcium's do the? So it's going to make everything go. A negative inno, negative prono, negative dromotropic effect right on the heart and everything else. Okay, so what's wrong with A? Why did A not get your answer? Tacky killed it. Why did B not get your answer? Elevated. Why did C not get your answer? Tall. So what was good about D? Decreased. Inverse. Inverse. Inverted. Blocked. Right? Okay, good job. And you don't have to... See, the nice thing about it is you don't have to... It's actually testing your knowledge of the principles of what it does. And, 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 but you don't have to memorize all fancy stuff. Okay? All right, take a break. Come back at at twenty at half past.